Have you, been not- have you noticed something up here today? What is this? A lawnmower. You ever wonder? You know why this is up here? The carpet was getting kind of long. And, um, and I needed to come in. I was cutting the carpet in my office area because it was getting a little long. And, no, actually, this is my lawnmower. Um, isn't it pretty? It's red. It's a red lawnmower. It's a cheap lawnmower. It's a Walmart cheapo lawnmower. Um, they last about two years. Matter of fact, with this one, one day I hit a stump. And when I hit the stump, I, it's such wimpy metal, I bent the front end in, which, which then um, made the blade hit the front of it. And it bent the blade right in half. And it's kind of fun. It was jumping all over the place and, uh, and cut a big circle in my lawn. Perfect circle, though. Perfect. Um, and then I just had to get a different blade for it. Um, and I took a hammer and beat it out. But I cleaned it up to bring it today um, because it was kind of dirty. The, there was mud in the tires and, and it had grass all over. I'd take a, take a wag rag and wipe it in a putty knife and clean all the grass off it so I could bring it to church. Also, I made sure there was no gas in it. Um, but this is my lawnmower. Now, I need help from somebody. Who do I want to... Dave, come on up here. Come on up here, Dave. Nothing big. Now, check out my lawnmower. Do you like that lawnmower? See how it pushes once. Does it push all right? It's not self-propelled. You handle it. I was making sure it was. It's not self-propelled. You know, this is not a self-propelled thing. This is just make sure it runs. If you let that go, it dies. Now, i got a question. You think this is capable of cutting my lawn? Fully capable of cutting my lawn. In this state, no. So, so yeah, it has no gas in it. But uh, so um, so anyway, it um, it is capable. Would you want to cut my lawn this summer with it? I got a very small yard. You do do that, but my my yard is like tiny. So would you would you think you would be capable of cutting my lawn with this I this could, year? I could. Okay. Okay. Um, now I need you to come over here with me or something. I need you to check something out with me. Now I want you. If you look underneath here, is there something wrong with my lawnmower? It's no blade on my lawnmower. What? So there's no blade on my lawnmower. So if you came to my house this summer to cut my lawn, would the lawnmower look good? Yes. You think if I started it, it would sound like a lawnmower? Yes. Yeah. Um, you engaged it, you know, it worked, let it go, it would stop. And you could push it all around the yard, right? All around the yard. But would it work very good at cutting the lawn? No. Why? Because it's missing its blade, right? All right. Well, thank you for helping me out this morning. I just wanted to make sure that everybody understood that. But if I came to your house and it wouldn't work, I would just drive to church. You, grab the riding well, then you, and you'd only have to go one circle around the whole yard and it would be done because my yard is so small. So my lawnmower would start. It would look good. It would sound good. But it wouldn't do what it was meant to do. The problem... When, when Murray, that's the company who sold this to Walmart, Briggs and Stratton Engine, when they built this thing, they built it for a purpose. It was built to cut lawn, to cut grass. But it can't do what it was meant to do. It was meant to cut grass, but as it is without the blade, which the good thing about it, I had to take the blade off to do this today. But I thought, hey, I get to take it off, now I get to sharpen it at least. So my blade's going to get sharpened. Um, but it, in the state it's in, it couldn't, it couldn't do what it was meant to do. They manufactured it for a purpose, so it cut the grass. But the way it is, it looks good, it sounds good. From the outside, it seems right, but it can't do what it was meant to do. You say, well, why are we talking about lawns today? Well, I really believe that's kind of what Pastor James 
is writing about in the next section that we're going to look at as, we get in, as we're going through the book of James together. So grab your Bible, open up to James chapter 2, James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Look what it says. It says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet does not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And as the scripture and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. We'll stop right there. Now here's what I think is going on as James is writing this. I think that James must have been seeing something among his Christian brothers and sisters that he just couldn't wrap his head around. That people were saying they were Christians, they were saying they were followers of Jesus, they looked the part, they could talk the talk, they went to church, they hung out with others who said they were Christians, but their actions, or lack of action, betrayed them. It seems that James was seeing things um, like he wrote about in verses 15 and 16. Look in verses 15 and 16. He says, if a brother or sister, so this is talking about church people, is without clothing and is in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, oh, go in peace, and be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. He says, what use is that? Look at what he's seeing. It's obviously going on in his church. Christian people with resources encountering other Christian people without resources. And and resources he's talking about are just the basic human needs. He's saying somebody doesn't have enough food or enough clothes or shelter. They're missing the most basic Christian, basic life needs. And the ones with the resources, they bless the people. That's what he says is going on. He's watching it happen. They bless those with their words, but not with their actions or deeds. What do they say to them? You don't have enough food? Well, and you're cold, well, go in peace. Be warmed and be filled. But obviously, the people didn't actually help them to be warmed and to be filled by buying them a coat or giving them supper, even though it says they had the resources 
to do so. You know what they were like? They were like lawnmowers without blades. They look good. They sound good. But they really can't, they don't really do anything. At least they don't do what they were created by the manufacturer to do. See, James sees us going on within the family of God, and he asks two, in the text here, two rhetorical questions. You know what a rhetorical question is? The question is that you ask a question, but the answer is so obvious, it's implied, you don't need to ask it. Not really saying, give me an answer, it's that you already know the answer to the question. So he asks two rhetorical questions. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Then he asks another rhetorical question. Can that faith save him? Well, the two rhetorical questions that James knows that they ought to know the answer to, the answer to both of those questions is no. No, a faith without works is not useful. And no, that kind of faith can't save you. So then James adds verse 17. Look at verse 17. He says, so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Being by itself. Only faith and no works. You know what I wrote in my, in my, my notes here about that? I wrote this, this wow! Exclamation point. Wow! James knows how to stir up trouble. This guy's a master at stirring up trouble. I feel good when I read James. Because I realize that, that there's guys who are way better at stirring up trouble than I am. And James knows how to literally... Punch people in the faith, in the face, for, you know, maybe better, punch them in the faith. Punch them in the faith face for good purposes to get their attention. He says the people um, who say they believe in Jesus, they're going to church. He says to them, but their, that their faith, but the, he says the people who say they believe in Jesus, but their, but their faith makes no real difference in the way they live. What he's basically saying in, in our illustration is, you know what, you're like a lawnmower without a blade. He says, you know, so that could be a new statement for us right here. You're like a lawnmower without a blade. I think that's what the way James would say it. He's saying that faith is, faith is useless, and that faith is deceptive. Matter of fact, he says something in here that is kind of funny. I, don't, I didn't realize this until I read this a couple of times, that a, a roommate of mine used to always use this term. You foolish fellows. I had a guy named Jeff was my roommate. He always would say that. You foolish fellows. Um, take it from James here. James says to be like that, you're being foolish. Because why? Your faith is dead. It doesn't do what it was given life and intended to do. Now, can we understand why James makes people uncomfortable when he talks like this? I can. This, make, this ought to make people uncomfortable who know the word of God. When James talks like this, because we know all of Scripture. And you say to yourself, James, uh, you seem to be out of step with what a lot of other people say in the rest of Scripture. And you can look at it and go, James, you could be like Martin Luther, who said it's a very strawy gospel, inferring that it could be burned up. Because he says things like this. We can understand why James makes people feel uncomfortable when he just punches them in the face with these kinds of statements. Because we know from Scripture this about salvation. Salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. 
Salvation through Jesus is by faith alone. The Apostle Paul says it over and over. The Apostle Paul said a number of things. Listen to what he said. He says, For we maintain that the man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, faith alone. He says this, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Galatians 3, 6, faith alone. Again, Paul says this, However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4, 5, faith alone. He says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, faith alone. And it's not just the Apostle Paul who taught that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Luke, when he writes Acts, says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. He says, just believe. Acts 16.31, faith alone. John writes this, Yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 1.12, faith alone. John also says this, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have, shall have eternal life. John 3.16, faith alone. Clearly, Scripture teaches that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, believing in him, trusting in him. So here's the $64,000 question with those two sides of the coin. How can James then say, faith if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. How can James say it? Is James wrong? Is Paul wrong? Or some people want to say, is the Bible filled with contradictions that can't be justified and reconciled with each other? And the answer to all of those is no. There is no contradiction here at all, if you understand what's going on. Because... James and Paul and the rest of the people I referred to here are not dealing with the same thing. Paul and the others that I just quoted are dealing with the time before conversion. And James is dealing with people after they come to Christ. Scripture is saying that coming to Christ is by faith alone. The Spirit convicts us of sin and results in our need of a Savior and we respond by faith, by trusting in Jesus, Jesus only to save us, faith alone. But what about after we come to faith in Christ? After we're saved. That's what James is dealing with here. Do you remember who James is writing to? My dear brothers and sisters. He's writing to believers. And he's saying that if you really did and do believe then it should be evident by what you do. He says if you claim that you are in Christ and you can go to church and see a brother or sister in very real need and walk away without helping that person, then James is questioning the authenticity of your original believing. He's saying, I'm not sure it's even real. 
that you're believing is little more than knowing some facts about God and Jesus and Christianity, but that just knowing isn't the same as being converted. Just, it's not the same as being saved, just knowing facts. It's not the same as having Jesus within you as your Savior and Lord such a, such a real way that Christ in you will compel you to see a need and meet the need. He questions, how could you claim to have Jesus on the inside without acting like Jesus on the outside? That's what he's dealing with here. So there's no contradiction. James is dealing with someone's life after conversion, saying, if it's real, it'll show. And Paul and the others are dealing with our conversion, coming to Christ through faith alone, trusting in Jesus and no other way. Does that make sense? That clear? This has been something the church world has wrestled with for 2,000 years, and it's so understandable. But it's caused so much conflict, if you just understand. They're talking about different things. Now James, remember, the half-brother of Jesus, who really gets this stuff, he so wants to pound his point home that he gives four illustrations that each reinforce his point. He's saying, I'm going to make you understand what I'm saying here, that if your faith is real, it'll result in activity. And so he gives four illustrations that each reinforce his point that say your faith will be proven by your actions. The first illustration, the demons believe. You ever think about that? The demons believe. Look at verses 18 to 20. This is but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. They're trying to say, well, you know, you're fine. You say you have, you're doing good things, but you know, I have faith that's on the inside. It's just hidden there. You can't see it. He says, show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? He says, someone could say to you, you have works and I have faith. They're saying like this, well, we're just different. I'm not wrong not having any works, but my faith is on the inside. It's, it's there. You can't see it, but it's, it's really there. They're saying this, I believe just like you believe. I know the same information as you know, and I believe it's true the way you believe it's true. So James makes a great point. He goes, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. But let's, let's expand it to its, to its next conclusion. He says the demons also believe the truth about Jesus and God. The demons also believe. They know the truth. They believe in God. They know Jesus is Savior. They hate him for it. Think of all the times Jesus interacted with demonic people. The demons would say this, I know who you are, Jesus. Why are you here to torment me before my time? The demons know the truth. Right? But surely, here's his, here's his, his assumption in the thing. But surely you don't believe they're saved. That's what he's saying. He's saying they know the truth. But surely you don't believe a demon is saved. You know, this is my favorite verse to take someone to when they, when they tell me, well, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But they're clearly not saved. And that's not for me to determine, but their actions can say something. See, just knowing facts that are true, does not equal salvation. If it did, the demons would be saved. 
Belief, faith, that saving faith that Paul is talking about, that, that Luke was talking about, that Jesus talked about, that here James talks about, that saving faith goes beyond knowing facts. It's about putting your total trust in the person of Jesus Christ. It's about totally depending on him, not depending on yourself. And then because he's so real to you, you follow his lead and it reveals in how you live. It's saving faith, not just knowing information. A lot of people know information. The demons know information. But James is saying that does not necessarily equate to saving faith. There's a big difference. James is trying to warn people. Remember, that's what he's doing here. He's warning people Two times in the last couple of weeks we looked at when he says, listen, don't be deceived. This is out of a heart of love. James looks and says, listen, I don't want you to be deceived. To believe if you just believe a couple right facts and you, and you look like a nice lawnmower and you sound like a nice lawnmower, that you're really in a good place. He's going, no, I can't let you live in that deception. Friends, what James is saying is if you believe some facts about Jesus but have never surrendered your life to him, so that he is your Savior and your Lord, then James is saying, you know what? You better make sure your faith is saving faith. And you'll know it because it'll result in activity that acts like Jesus. So that's the first illustration. He pounded that point home pretty good, didn't he? Ready for him to pound the next point, the pound home a different way? Illustration number two. He brings up Abraham. The number one thing people, person people would use to say, salvation by faith alone. Paul goes right to the, or James goes right to the throat right to the heart of the issue and says, okay, I'll explain Abraham. Look at verses 21 through 24. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? This had to freak people out when they read it. When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled. In my Bible, that's that's underlined in red. Scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Abraham is the one person um, used to explain salvation by faith alone probably more than anybody else. And James here quotes Genesis and says, well, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and it was, he was called the friend of God. He said, faith alone, salvation by faith alone. But then look what James does here. He looks further down the path of Abraham's life to a time when God put him to the ultimate test. God told Abraham, you remember this test he's referring to here with his son Isaac? He said, I want you to take your son, your beloved son, your son of the promise, and I want you to take him up on the mountain, Abraham, and what I want you to do is I want you to take a knife and I want you to plunge it in his heart and I want you to kill him as a sacrifice on the altar. The son of promise. That, that God had said would come from his body. And he's over 100 years old when this son is born. The miracle child. He's a type of Christ. Looking forward to Christ. And God looks at Abraham and says, Abraham, you know what I want you to do? Now you finally got the whole promise worked out. I finally gave you a miracle child. He's going to be the, the heir that your descendants will come through. Now take him up on a mountain and kill him. These are real people. Can you imagine that? I, I cannot imagine it. I have no way of wrestling and grappling with what Abraham did and no way of coming to terms with his level of obedience. Because what did he do? He did it. 
And he goes up on the mountain, he takes his son, and his son Isaac was probably about 13 years old, and Isaac's actually carrying the wood for his own, for his own burial to be burned as a sacrifice. He says, Dad, uh, we got the wood, we got the fire and torch. Where's the sacrifice? God will provide, son. God will provide. He knows what's going on. And even if he didn't know for sure, he gets up on the mountain and dad ties him up. Builds an altar, ties him up, lays him on. He's a 13-year-old kid. His dad's 100. He probably could have whooped his dad. He doesn't do it. He lays there. His father ties him up. His father takes that crude old knife and he raises it up in the air and he's going to plunge it in his... I can't imagine what he's thinking. And right when he's like this, what happens? God says, Abraham, stop! And he stops. And right there in the bushes is a ram stuck by its horns. Don't kill your son. There's a sacrifice right there, Abraham. But Abraham had that thing, that knife up in the air and he says, God, you told me to do it. I don't get it. It says in the New Testament, talk about that, it says Abraham was willing to do it because he knew God, if had to, would even raise the dead. He said, I'm coming back off this mountain with my son, but it might, he might be dead, but he's going to be alive when he comes down. I'm not sure how, but I will obey the Lord. James says that, that action, that obedience, that is what validates his belief and his faith. He says Abraham's works prove the validity and reality of his faith. Not salvation by works, as some people have misquoted James to teach. Not at all. But works flowing from an obedient follower of Jesus. He says, listen, your faith, if it's real, if you've got faith other than demon faith, demon faith says, well, I believe the truth. If you've got faith beyond that, it will result in obedience. That you see somebody in need and the spirit wells up inside you and says, meet that need. And you don't go, but I wanted to go for Culver's and I don't have money if I give them that. God says, give it to them. That's obedient faith. Illustration number three. And I think he does this on purpose, illustration number three. Rahab the harlot. Look at this, look at verse 25. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them away, sent them out by another way. Now you need to know the story, what's going on here. This is what I think happened. I'd imagine James thought, I'm writing to this group of people. Remember, he's writing a real man, writing a real letter to real people. And he says, well, maybe my readers can excuse away the illustration of Abraham because it's just unimaginable how anybody could have that level of obedience. And after all, he was an extraordinary man. And people could say something like this, well, I'm no Abraham. People say that kind of stuff all the time. Just fill in the blank, something else. Well, I'm no whatever. I'm, you know I hear all the time? Well, I'm no saint. And I go, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be. That's how we're defined as saints. I'm no saint. Well, yes, you are. Live up to who you are. And I think they could say, well, I'm no Abraham. So James picks an example from the extreme other end of the spectrum. He says, well, let me give you an example. Let me tell you about a prostitute named Rahab. You don't like the fact you're going to look at Abraham as your example? You don't want the demons to say, well, I'm not a demon. I can dismiss that. Well, I'm not Abraham. I'm no Abraham. Well, let me take one from the other end of the spectrum. Let me pull Rahab the harlot out of the mix and show you that her life proves my point also. You know her story? Rahab was a prostitute who lived in Jericho, the walled city, a, an unconquerable walled city in the promised land. Moses had just died. Joshua was the new leader of the people of Israel. And they're going across the river. And they're going to go into the promised land. And they're going to conquer Jericho. 
So Joshua, what's he do? He sends a new leader. He sends out spies to Jericho to check out the city before they attack it. They come to the city. They come in the city to begin checking it out. And they come to Rahab the prostitute. And she, they figure out the guys, the the, the soldiers in the city are going to kill the spies. So she hides them in her house. And then she helps them to escape unharmed and return back to the people of Israel. So what happened? So when Israel attacked Jericho, which they did, it's where they marched around, they blew horns and the walls fell down and they charged in and, and took the city. What, remember what happened? Rahab tied a red thread on there, symbolic of the blood of Christ. And when the Israelites saw the red thread, they said, leave, leave her alone. Bring her out unharmed and let her join our family, the family of God. And Rahab was spared, her life was saved, and she dwelled with the people of God. Well, James looks at Rahab and says, do you want to know if her faith in God was real? Then look at her works. So she risked her life to partner with the people of God. He says, that's real belief. That's real faith. I'll show you my faith by my works, is what James is teaching. Real faith is authenticated by real works. The fourth illustration. A dead body. Look at verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James couldn't make it any simpler. We all know that the body without the spirit is dead. You know, we've all had that, that situation, most of us have, of, of, of going to a funeral. The deceased is there, but the deceased isn't there. Their body is there, but they are gone. The body without the spirit is dead. And James says, so also faith without works is dead. There is no reality, no life, no spirit. He's saying Christianity without outflow, without good works, is empty and dead. It reveals a spiritual deadness on the inside. And James doesn't want any of us to settle for empty, dead religiosity. So he's saying, listen, don't be deceived. What does your outflow show about your internal reality of Christ? So James makes it pretty clear. Faith without works is dead. Is James trying to say you've got to earn your salvation? Never says that for a minute. He says it just can't be alone. That's why my Bible, that's, that, that's, that's, that's underlined. It says faith being by itself. He's saying it's not just faith. That real faith will always be paired with real works. They're, 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 they're joined. You can't separate them. The one leads to the other. You don't earn your salvation, but if you're saved, saving faith, It'll change you on the inside and you'll, be, you'll, act, you'll see the world like Jesus sees it. Now we grow and develop and it's about a maturing process, but you will see the world differently than you did before. So as we end, the question for each of us is this. What do our works reveal about our faith? I'll tell you this, it's not for me to conclude. Not for me to conclude about you, but it's for you to conclude about you. Remember James used this idea about looking in the mirror, seeing yourself. He said, oh, you look in the mirror. What do we see about ourselves? 
Maybe when we see, if we see what we don't like, we look and we say, you know what, I have to do some repenting. Repenting means changing direction. I need, to, I need to say, you know what, Lord, I need to do some reprioritizing in my life because it's all become just about me and I've become deceived in a world that's really good at deception. The message of the media and the message of the world can get you where you live for everything else but living out the reality of Christ in your life. And maybe God's saying, if you look in the mirror, you know what, I don't see any works. Not really, not honestly. I look like a lawnmower. I look good. I sound good. I can start my engine. I can say all the Christian chatter. Look underneath the hood, man. There's no blade cutting any grass. If there's no grass getting cut, then you need to ask yourself, how real is that faith? And maybe you need to do some evaluating and some direction changing. Maybe you need to honestly say yes to Jesus today. Without limitations. You've, you've done it before with limitations. Yes, but. Abraham is the ultimate example of never saying yes, but. He just said yes. And I trust. And you'll take care of me. No yes, buts. Maybe we just need to honestly say yes to Jesus. No limitations. No going part way. No stay, staying in a shallow under the pool. Total surrender to the God who loves you so much that he died for you and wants to welcome you into his family. Saying yes to him today. God wants the best for us, church. Let's never settle for something less than real faith that results in real Jesus kind of life and action in this world. Because that's the best life. Amen? Won't you stand together? I close in prayer. I just want to, I felt, I actually wrote this down. I want to pray for us today. You say, well, that's pretty presumptuous. It is. I'm going to be presumptuous. And if you don't agree with what I pray, just don't agree with it. Okay? But I believe this is, this is, I believe this is our collective heart. Could you join me in prayer this morning? Our Father in heaven, the giver of love and life, the one who sent his very own son to literally die in my place. We want to be all in with you today. We don't want to be half-hearted. We don't want to be halfway. We want such a reality of you on the inside that it is evident on the outside. What we want, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit is that you would so radiate within us that you would shine through us. And that shining through us would be good works. Your word says that we are like cities, like lights set on a hill. And it says in that text, so that we would, so that we would shine the light of good works to onlookers. Lord, I thank you that we're not saved by works. I thank you we don't have to earn anything. I thank you that we don't have to try harder, do more, um, pray more, give more. None of that to come to you as Savior. But as we welcome you in, you do this amazing reconstructive work within us 
that takes us away from the ways of the world and causes us to live by a different drummer, by the beat of a different drummer, by, by values that are different, that are peculiar. The values of the cross, the values of a Savior who gives himself for others. And Lord, I pray this on our behalf today. Would you so dwell within us today that something so real happens in us that we begin to feel and act differently. And it's so real that it comes out of us in displays that other people can see, not for their sake alone, but for our sake, so that we are amazed by us. We're amazed by ourselves because we're different than we were last year and the year before and the year before that. We're more like Jesus. Because then we know, God, that we'll be more filled with, with peace and more filled with, with grace and more filled with contentment and more filled with love and more filled with the presence of your reality so that we'll experience real life and not the pseudo-life that the world offers through just the pursuit of stuff. We want it all, God. We are greedy for it all, for the good. And so we jump in the deep end of the pool today. We say, take my life and give me Jesus so that I can experience the reality of Christ in me, the hope of God. And I pray now, God, for every person in this place that as we leave this building today, this wouldn't stop, the stirring of the Spirit wouldn't stop when we walk out and eat pancakes. But that, God, it would build. It would, it would, it would so build within us that husbands and wives would have to talk at lunch about what God is doing in their hearts. That families would have to say, we need to make some changes. That suddenly be stirred to say, I can't let Easter go by without inviting my neighbor or my friend or my family member. I've got to be like Jesus because it's, it's welled up within me inside. God, let your reality just flow out of us like a river in springtime. Strong and full and Wash away the junk and let your flow be so real within us for your glory. As we say yes to you like Abraham said yes to you. So Lord, I pray your blessing, your grace, your goodness, your fullness upon and within every person in this place. And I pray literally there would be a transformation in us because we say yes to you. So God, thank you that you're the best in mind. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.